Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, good morning. Uh, If you'll be turning your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 12, and as we do that, uh, children, you can be dismissed uh, to your time in the Word and Children's Church in the back, and the volunteers can meet you back there for that. But everyone else, go to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 18 through 29. We're going to finish out this amazing chapter this morning. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him as we always do in a word of prayer and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, the gift of your gathering of us to your word, and the reason we gather on this day in particular, as your word tells us, that on the first day of the week, Christ rose from the dead. And as we've worshiped him this morning, and we come to your word to focus our eyes and ears on him, I pray for your spirit's help. Illuminate the word before us, that we may hear and know rightly the truth you are telling us. Give me right words to speak, and all of us good ears and hearts to receive it, that we may continue as we have so often spoken of in this letter, in enduring faith to the end. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. We love you. Amen. Well, I'm biased, being Tar Hill born and Tar Hill bred, but I believe that we live in the greatest state in the entire country. And one of the reasons I believe that is in the state of North Carolina, and in particular where we live here in Raleigh, we have 
vacations not very far from us on either side. We have beaches and we have mountains. Now, if, I have, if I'm forced to cho- choose between one of those two, the choice for me is easy. I'm going to the mountains. The mountains are, they are things, that they are a part of this state and part of creation. I love driving through them. I love seeing the trees that blanket the mountains. I love driving alongside a river that is weaving its way through the mountains. Because when I see a mountain or a mountain range, I'm overcome. I, I'm lost in the awe and grandeur and humility of I'm such a small person compared to this massive pile of rock that is stretching up towards the sky. And another thing that excites me about the mountains is if you can get up on top of one and you can look out and see farther than you've ever seen before and, you, and your breath is taken away. So with all of that, in my experience and hopefully in your experience too, it should be no wonder to us then that mountains cover the landscape of the Bible. The words for mountain are used nearly 380 times in the Bible. And that's not counting all the references to hills. And time and time again, mountains aren't just referred to in the scripture as just a, a place or a metaphor. There are actual sacred spaces where heaven and earth overlap, where God himself meets with and dwells with his people. And the author of Hebrews is drawing our attention to some mountains in this passage. And as we will see, he does so so that we can fix our eyes on Jesus and continue on a path of enduring faith toward him. So we're going to be looking at three points this morning. The first one is the earthly mountain. The second is the heavenly mountain. And the third is the unshakable mountain. So looking in verse 18, we'll see first of all the earthly mountain. And if you look through this, if you're scanning through this passage, it doesn't really uh, reference a mountain. In fact, you could come into this this morning and we just jumped into reading and you're like, I don't actually know uh, what he is talking about. Because as we've seen over and over again, the author of Hebrews is constantly referencing the Old Testament and he is assuming that his readers know those references. But you may have come in this morning and heard that and read that, and you don't know what this is referring to. Well, if you have a Bible with cross-references, you'll see a note there for Exodus chapter 19. I would invite you to turn your Bibles over to Exodus chapter 19. We're going to get the context of what the author of Hebrews is talking about. And as you're turning there, I'll, I'll give us a setup for what's going on in the story. We, we know the book of Exodus mostly because that's where God delivered his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. They're uh, going through the wilderness, and they finally come to this place that God originally called Moses to go and deliver them. They come to Mount Sinai, and they camp out there. And Moses, um, when they get there, he is, he's a mediator. He is going up the mountain to receive a word from the Lord, and then he is coming down the mountain to give that word to the people, and the people respond, and Moses carries that message back up. So there's this constant going up and down for Moses on the mountain. And ultimately what is happening here is God calls his people to make a covenant with him And the people, when Moses comes down and brings the terms of that covenant, they say, yes, we agree, we will do all that the Lord commands us. So that gets us a running start, and we'll pick up the story in Exodus chapter 19, verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, 
Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. That's intense. And that should kind of blow our minds away, just soaking in for a moment what the Lord was doing when his presence came down. Because if you read through the story of the Bible, you will, of course, see many, many things that God does that are amazing and incredible and powerful. But you don't often get a glimpse in a story of what happens when God shows up with this kind of presence, like this kind of display of who he is right there amongst the people. This is unique. The entire mountain covered in smoke and fire. It's shaking, it's trembling, and so are the people who are present there. And uh, it shook as he thundered his speech to Moses. And ultimately, the people cry out to Moses, you go talk to him, you go deal with him. If he speaks anymore and we hear it, we're going to die. That's how much it affected them. So go back to Hebrews chapter 12. You can imagine every one of their senses being engaged at this site. And this is clearly the story that the author of Hebrews had in mind in chapter 12. But that begs the question for us, why does the author bring this story before us in this passage? Because he starts off telling his audience, this is not the mountain you've come to. You haven't come to a mountain like this that can be touched, that's physical, that you could go there. His reference here is not simply to the story that we just read at Mount Sinai, but the entirety of the old covenant that was inaugurated on that mountain between God and Israel. And in case we uh, have forgotten in our study of Hebrews, let me reiterate that covenant was good and it was beautiful. Through this covenant, God would have sanctified his people. He said, you will be a kingdom of priests, meaning you are going to represent me to all the nations and hopefully through that, fulfill the promise he made to Abraham generations ago that through you and your family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This was a covenant 
that they, if they would keep it, if they would follow it and obey the Lord, they would find life and blessing in it. But as we just read, this covenant came with dread and fear. I don't know if you have ever used the expression, uh, putting the fear of God in someone. No one can do that like God himself, all right? God came down that mountain, and the fear of him was in the people of Israel. And as he smote the mountain with his presence, the fear that he was driving into them was designed to warn them against giving their allegiance to any of the gods they had left in Egypt, any of the gods of the peoples to, in the land that they were going to, giving their allegiance to any desire or craving of their heart. Everything was to be to him and to him alone. And this experience at the foot of the mountain with it quaking with the presence of God should have shook them down to the core so that they would be completely submissive to Yahweh. They would enter into that covenant for their good and for his glory. But instead, just a few days later, after Moses goes up on the mountain, they make a new God for themselves. They make a golden cow. And they worship it, right at the foot of that mountain, while God is still present on it, smoking it, clouding it, he's still there. Why? Why would, why would they do that? Why, what would cause them to do that? We can speculate, but perhaps Yahweh was just too fearful for them to believe that he was good, that he had their best interests at heart. For sure, this God is not one they could control. They could not command this deity. So they made one they could deal with, a little bit tamer, a little bit easier to be around. So here in the very beginning of God's covenant with Israel, we see that God's powerful presence that he displayed here was not enough to transform the human heart. It was intensely wicked, desperately wicked. And this is, this is Israel's fall story. This is their taking the fruit of the tree and the garden moment because the rest of the story of the Old Testament bears out that they just keep doing this. And the author tells the Hebrews, this is not the mountain you have come to, because on this earthly mountain, you won't find forgiveness of sin. You won't find hearts made new. A word for us, here's, we're thousands of years later. Maybe like me, you would, you thought before that, okay, God showed up like this in the story of the Bible. Why doesn't he do that? Why? If he could only just come down on a mountain in this day and age, particularly in this uh, time of social media and everything being broadcasted, if he would come down to a mountain like he did in this story and just shake the, the mountain and set it on fire and speak on that mountain, then surely people would turn to him and repent. But we know this is not true. We just read it's not true. And our own wayward hearts tell us as much. We ourselves are too terrified often of this God to believe that he's good and he wants our best. And yet we're not terrified enough to believe that our sin is an affront to his goodness, an offense against it. If the Lord smote the mountain in our presence today, the world, we along with it, would be no different than faithless Israel. We need a different mountain. 
We need a different outpouring of God's fiery presence, one that can seep into our heart and our bones and change us and transform us into new creations. And that brings us to the second mountain, the second point, the heavenly mountain. Look in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now let's pause for a second because we need to pick up on the line of thought that the author of Hebrews is going with here. So back in verse 18, he starts with, for you have not come to what may be touched. So if we're going to continue that line of thought in verse 22, the author would say, but you have come to something that cannot be touched. Meaning, the heavenly mountain he is about to describe for us here is not something that we can physically go to, we can physically see, we can physically put our hands on. And that might cause us to think, especially in harder times of our lives, that this mountain is figurative and it's not real. Don't make that mistake. This mountain is more real than the, our five senses can engage with because, as we just learned in Hebrews chapter 11, this mountain is perceived by faith. Faith in what is unseen, and it's still real. But the author, as we just read, uses names of real places to describe this uh, heavenly mountain, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the city of God. Why does he do that? Because those, very, uh, those physical places we can touch on earth represent heavenly realities that are more amazing and more incredible. So first of all, the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city that was ruled by Melchizedek in Abraham's time, ruled by David, uh, and both of those kings also acted in very priestly ways in the story of the Bible. The book of Judges has a, a verse of a commentary that in the time of the Judges, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And sin destroyed everything in that story. But under these two kings, we see blessing and feasting flowing out to the citizens, citizens of that city because they were all about the worship of Yahweh and seeking him and trusting in him. And the author of Hebrews has highlighted both of these kings in our study through this letter already. And as he draws our attention to the heavenly Jerusalem, we know that it is also ruled by a king and a priest. The king of kings, the great high priest. From him flows blessings to the citizens of that city. He also makes mention of Mount Zion, which is, is contained in Jerusalem. This is the place where it's believed Abraham offered up Isaac, his son. This was the place where David offered sacrifices to atone for his sin against the Lord when in pride he commanded a census of the nation. This was the place, this was the mountain where Solomon built the temple for Yahweh to dwell with his people. A house for the Lord. And when he finished it, God filled that house and that mountain with his glory and the people fell down and worshiped. And the author of Hebrews has taught us already about this sacred space where God dwelled with his people, where they would come to worship him, where they would come to offer sacrifices both in thanksgiving and also to repent and confess their sins before him. The heavenly Mount Zion is also filled with the presence of the Lord. 
but to a much greater extent because it is his son who was offered up to atone for sinful humans. And he is the one who has entered that exalted realm, that sacred space once for all to intercede for sinners like you and me. This is the city of the living God, and we have come to it by the blood of his son. But it's not just a mountain and a city that we have come to. We also find in these verses a community in this sacred space, and it is a beautiful community. Look uh, again to verse 22. You've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Uh, The root word there for festal is feast. Ancient Hebrews would have got that reference because they would trek from all over the Near East to the earthly Jerusalem for these sacred annual feasts that were prescribed in the book of Leviticus in the Old Covenant. And that city would have swelled in size as the people celebrated the goodness of their God at these feasts. There is a glorious feast on this heavenly mountain and city. And the author of Hebrews has already highlighted for us way back in chapter 1, in the beginning of this letter, about angels and how incredible they are. So he comes back to it again here, and he tells us there are angels that cannot be counted, like this whirling storm just making ready for this feast day before the Lord. And they celebrate the great founder of the feast, the King of Heaven. And the community is larger still. Look again to verse 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The word for assembly there in the Greek can also be translated church. And it's a good reminder for us that we um, often call this building the church as a very shorthand way of saying what we're talking about, but that's not what the church is. The church is an assembly, a gathering of people. And we see here in this passage that it's made up of the firstborn. Now, this is a plural word, meaning it isn't just one firstborn person. Now, I don't know about you, but in my family, we don't have many firstborn people. We only got one, and that's my oldest sister. Maybe you do things differently in your family. Clearly, when the author is using the plural here, he is not saying that only firstborn people in every family are going to enjoy this city and this mountain because that would be trouble for fourthborns like me. We're not getting in that way. Now, this is, as the author has shown us before, this is not a reference to birth order. This is a reference to status. All along the way, the author of Hebrews has been speaking to his audience as sons who by their status receive an inheritance. The true firstborn over all creation, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, now shares the inheritance that is rightfully his. He shares it with many sons. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it was fitting that he for whom, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. These firstborn sons and daughters who follow the firstborn son over all creation are enrolled in heaven. They're sealed. They're guaranteed to be there as part of the heavenly mountain. And the community is larger still. 
Look at verse 23 again. And we've come to God, the judge of all. The same Yahweh that smote Mount Sinai with consuming fire, he's present in this mountain. And he is still the just and perfect judge of all. He will let no unconsecrated human or beast touch this heavenly mountain where it will be corrupt in a way that would let it be corrupted with sin. So how does he do that? How does, he, how does he make that possible for you and me to become a part of it and this community, as we've been reading, to keep getting larger and larger? How does he do that? Because as the author taught us in Hebrews 7.25, we have an advocate at the throne of this judge who has already received the judgment we deserved. He is ever now living to intercede for us as our great high priest. The God who was unapproachable at Mount Sinai has now made himself completely approachable through his son on the heavenly mountain. And the community is larger still. Look again at verse 23. We've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This mountain contains the saints like the ones we read about and studied about in Hebrews chapter 11, who by faith received that old covenant, trusting something better, something new would come. And the author told the Hebrews back at the end of chapter 11 that those saints are not made perfect or not made complete without the saints in the new covenant. That God is gathering saints of all ages together in this heavenly mountain. And they are gathered and they are made righteous, not through their works, but by their faith. Faith and the promised seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. And the community is larger still. Look at verse 24. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And now we've come to it. This is the hot spot. This is the centerpiece of this holy heavenly mountain. The glorious radiance of this sacred dwelling. All throughout our study in Hebrews, we have learned to exalt Jesus above everything, above angels, above sacrifices, above covenants, above priests, above leaders. Yes, above Moses. Because when Moses at Mount Sinai was mediating God's fiery words and covenant to Israel, they ultimately brought the curse for their sin. But Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And he is the one that brings us God's burning heart of compassion and blessing and grace. And this, and this Jesus, his sprinkled blood, speaks to us a better word than the blood of Abel. Now what does that phrase mean? What, what is the author trying to get across to us there? Well, back in Genesis 4, when we read that story where Cain murdered his brother Abel in anger and God confronts him with that horrific sin, God said, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The word of Abel's blood, that, that word that went up to the throne of God it's a call for God to bring justice on human evil. Our human evil, judgment that 
we deserve for all the ways we have offended God. That is what the blood of Abel speaks to. And we deserve to be struck harder than God did on Mount Sinai with his fiery, consuming presence. But the better word, the greater word spoken by the blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross for us calls for God to pour out something else instead of justice. Mercy. Mercy that washes us clean and purifies us from all our sin against him. Mercy that transforms the sinner's heart into a firstborn son of the most high God. Jesus, who himself was lifted up on an earthly mountain when he died on a cross at Calvary, has now ascended to the heavenly mountain where he reigns over us in glory. He is the centerpiece of this ever-growing community of saints and angels and Christians together with God once more. He is our high king. He is our great high priest. He is the atoning sacrifice. He is the founder of the feast. He is the firstborn son among many brothers. He is the interceding advocate. He is the perfecter of the righteous. He is the mediator of the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, he is the heavenly mountain to which you have come. And all glory be to Jesus, the crucified and risen king of that heavenly mountain. Amen? So with all of these glorious truths before us, consider, and we're going to see them in point three, the unshakable mountain. Because all of this comes with, and we'll go through these one at a time, a warning, a promise, and a response. So first of all, the warning in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. We've gotten a lot of warnings in this sermon, in these sermons in the letter of Hebrews. So here's another one for us. Warnings about shrinking away or abandoning Jesus. Do not refuse the one who is speaking to us through his word this morning. Do not reject him who is inviting you, welcoming you to this heavenly mountain, to Jesus Christ. To look on all the majesty and glory of Jesus that we've just gone through and to turn and say, I refuse to believe it. I refuse to continue in it. I reject following in that way. That is inviting destruction on yourself for all eternity. The people who did that at Mount Sinai, they didn't escape God's judgment. And neither will we if we do the same. You cannot refuse life and expect to get anything but death. You cannot refuse and reject God and escape his judgment. Let's take the warning this morning. But secondly, we get a promise. Look at verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So he's quoting from the prophet Haggai here. 
And we can take this to heart in our lives because as we look out at our world today and we see all that this world has to offer and we live particularly in a country that is rather affluent in the world's standards, we can find it easier to accept the kingdoms of this world and the earthly mountain than the heavenly mountain that cannot be touched. Like a golden cow in the face of a fiery presence. But God has promised the day is coming when everything you and I see that we value and treasure and put our stock in that is apart from him will be shaken. He shook the earthly Mount Sinai once, but one day all rulers Authorities, kingdoms, principalities, and powers in heaven and on earth are going to come crashing down. He will shake them until not one of them remains. The prophet Daniel foresaw this. He, king Nebuchadnezzar was given this dream, and he interpreted that dream for the king. He saw this rock coming down from heaven, and it pulverized this statue that uh, was represented of the kingdoms of the world, shattered it till it was blown away. And then this rock grew into a mountain that filled the earth. The kingdoms of this world will be rocked so that the things that cannot be shaken, particularly as we have read, the eternal, the glorious heavenly Mount Zion that cannot be moved and all the hosts gathered there will be the ones that remain. And though we cannot see this heavenly mountain, we cannot touch it now, this very real heavenly mountain is coming and it's going to fill the entire earth. Third, we'll see the response. Look in verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. After all we've read this morning, and really after all we have read and studied for almost a year now going through Hebrews, what is it the author is calling us to do in verse 28? He's calling us to give thanks. We're to be thankful for what the Lord has done for us. Gratitude should be flowing out of our hearts this morning because a kingdom is coming to fill this earth that cannot be shaken and we're a part of it. More than just coming, it's a kingdom, this passage says, we've received and will be receiving. It's a kingdom given to us as an inheritance through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I know that many of us, if not all of us, have come into this room with struggles, with hardships, enduring in our faith. And even still, the author of Hebrews would tell us this morning, we have so much to be thankful for in Jesus Christ, in the kingdom that he is bringing. But we're also to worship the Lord with proper reverence and awe because this God is a consuming fire. Now this is the author's last subtle reference to the old covenant. Moses told the people of Israel in Deuteronomy when they're about any other gods because Yahweh their God is a consuming fire. 
they were not to give any place to anything that would supplant God as the ruler of their hearts and their lives. And we are called to do the same. We are called to not set up for ourselves idols that we worship in place of Yahweh God because he is still that consuming fire that hit the mountain. If you reject him, if you respond to him with, no, I will not accept this gift of the kingdom, then you will find yourself consumed in the fire of his judgment. But if you turn to him and you turn to the crucified and risen Jesus for forgiveness of sin, and you turn to him with a humble, thankful, worshiping heart, you'll find yourself consumed in the fire of his love that will never let you go. So the call to us today is clear. Come to the heavenly mountain that will one day be the unshakable mountain. The one that will come and fill the entire earth, the entire new heavens and new earth at the return of King Jesus. Yes, come to Jesus. He is the reigning and returning king. And we should come before him this morning with thanksgiving and worship for the kingdom he has given to us and is giving to us. I want to close us with some poetry from both the prophets Isaiah and Micah that I read this past week as they capture so well the end goal of our enduring faith, the heavenly mountain. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the people's walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. O oh, good and heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and as we often do, remembering the truth of your word. We deserve to be in fear and dread of you this morning. We deserve your judgment on us for our sin, for all the golden cows and the idols that we have heaped up against you and your wrath. Thank you, Jesus. 
thank you for taking the judgment we deserved on the cross for our sins. Thank you for rising again from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father. Thank you for transforming us from sinners into firstborn sons and daughters of the Most High King. Oh, King Jesus, I pray if there are people in this room or listening that don't know you, that are currently rejecting you, draw them by your spirit to your perfect blood shed for them to life to the heavenly mountain. And for the saints here, who struggle on in their faith. Oh Lord, sustain us. Keep our eyes fixed on that mountain that cannot be touched but is more real than anything we have here on earth. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, on that heavenly kingdom that one day will be the unshakable kingdom that fills the earth. And even so, we pray. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon to reign and rule. And come soon to fill the entire earth with your compassion, your grace, your mercy, your love, and your faithfulness. Your great, great faithfulness. We thank you for these things and we worship you now. In the name of Jesus, we love you. Amen.